Greetings. I'm Peter Hall, co-host of Theater Talk on WBFO, and you're at the Point of Learning with Peter Horn. In this episode, Peter talks with Bill Seemering. Back in 1962, Seemering was hired to transform WBFO from a student-run college radio club into a professional station. Because of the experiments in radio that he led at WBFO throughout the 1960s, Seemering was invited to serve on the first board of what would become National Public Radio. He was also invited to write the original mission statement of NPR while he was still working in Buffalo. Seemering went on to help create NPR's flagship program, All Things Considered, and also what we know today as Fresh Air. Fifty years later, Seemering is still passionate about the power of radio, now doing much of his work in the developing world. I'm looking forward to hearing what Bill and Peter discuss, so let's enjoy the show. On today's show, Bill Seemering has long been a passionate champion of the unique power of radio. Somebody asked me what I did, and I said I was managing WBFO. He said, oh, it's just radio? Yes, it's just radio, damn it. It's just radio. So that's why I ended up calling the program This Is Radio. And I meant, this is radio, damn it, because I wanted people to pay attention to the radio medium and appreciate what it could do. At NPR, he believed that radio could deliver something different and cutting edge. I wanted All Things Considered to be the very first broadcast record of the day's events. I didn't want it to be second to, because the television comes on at 6.30. PBS came on with kind of a backstory at 7. But I wanted, I wasn't taking a backseat to anyone. At WHYY in Philadelphia, he helped Terry Gross create a national program. Fresh Air, which was such an excellent program. I mean, I'd, I'd see the, the uh, guests leaving after the interview as a rule. They'd go by my office and I'd say, you know, that's the best interview I ever had. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Plus, a few secrets. This may be too much inside radio to know the backstory of how this happened. All that and more, coming right up. Bill Seemering can recall being enthralled by the power of radio as a six-year-old kid in a two-room schoolhouse in Wisconsin where educational programs known as the School of the Air brought lessons about nature, music, and art alive in his imagination. Two decades later, in the early 1960s, when the popularity of television led many to predict that radio was on its way out, Seemering found himself broadcasting in the fertile soil of western New York via the student-run station at the University at Buffalo, WBFO. During an extremely creative period in the history of UB, he had license to experiment and a charge from the dean who hired him to grow that small bush of a radio station into a great tree. In one project, Seemering and his staff set up five lines capturing live audio from around the city, and composer Marianne Amaker altered and mixed the sounds into a 28-hour composition called 
CityLinks, WBFO, that they broadcast nonstop. Listeners became aware of the music in their environment and checked the sound of the city as they might check a weather report. They could hear a steel-cutting saw and workers changing shifts at the Bethlehem Steel Factory, airplanes coming in, and a machine at General Mills that sounded like musical bells. Experiments like this, and others that he and I are about to mention, made Seamering only more impassioned in his advocacy for what radio could do better, there, I said it, than television. He began to write about what he and his staff were doing, imagining the possibilities of the transition from educational radio to what was starting to be called public radio. After the passage of the landmark 1967 legislation that created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Seamering was asked to serve on the founding board of directors for National Public Radio, and then to draft what became known as the NPR Mission Statement in 1970. Over 50 years later, current NPR staffers can still quote chunks of it, and several say that it's more important now than ever. Here's a few lines so you have the flavor. National Public Radio will promote personal growth rather than corporate gains. It will regard individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. It will celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal. It will encourage a sense of active, constructive participation rather than apathetic helplessness. The total service should be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, deepen aural aesthetic enjoyment, increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society, and result in a service to listeners which makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and intelligent citizens of their communities and the world. Again, that's just a taste. It is a beautiful piece of writing, replete with comments and discussion, and I have a link to it for you on the show page. Seamering went on to work at WHYY in Philadelphia, home of Fresh Air with Terry Gross, which he helped move from a local to a national show. A MacArthur Fellow and recipient of numerous other awards he has asked me not to mention, Bill has focused in recent decades on applications of radio for health and civil society in the developing world. I want to begin with the particular magic and power of radio as a medium, particularly how you began to experiment with it in the 1960s at WBFO in Buffalo, the decade before you helped to create National Public Radio. Let me tell you what I think I know and then what I'm wondering. So I, th I think I know that the school of the air for you um, as a child as young as six, a first grader going to school in a two-room schoolhouse uh, outside Madison, Wisconsin, possibly literally growing up in the shadow of the radio tower of WHA, now Wisconsin Public Radio, one of the oldest continuously broadcasting radio stations in the U.S. Um, I also believe that you were 13 or so when you were helping out on a farm mm -hmm. and you observed uh, you observed that uh, the farmers came in to check out agricultural news and the weather report there. So as a student, you had the School of the Air, which had art and music and science and nature studies. 
you knew that there was important information that was translated to people via radio. Radio, you know, was something that you worked on in college, student staff of the station. So all of that makes sense to me. But how you go from that basis and understanding that there are these particular functions that radio can serve in a community to doing the kinds of things that you were doing in Buffalo, for example, um, inviting members of the Tuscarora Nation, you know, to tell their story themselves in their own voice, um, going door to door uh, in communities on the east side in the early 60s, talking with African Americans about what it's like to be, you know, black in the United States. Um, these seem to be more radical democratic experiments. And I don't necessarily see a straight line between these kind of traditional uses of radio. Where did some of those ideas come for you about what you wanted to try to do? Um, and I'm just using Buffalo as an example because I know some of the things specifically that you did there. That's an interesting question um, <clears throat> because coming from WHA, which is quite a straight operation at Madison, to Buffalo, um, when I went to Buffalo, the Dean of Students, Dean Siegelkoh, who I knew from, from Madison, he was a, a teacher of mine there. Um, he said, this is just a small bush right now, but you can help grow it. I took that as a license to be experimental. Um, and he backed me up all the time on this. Um, as a university station, it should be experimental in a way that it wasn't at, at Wisconsin. And as this former student station, um, it was a student station when I arrived there. They were off the air in the summers and uh, went on the air in the afternoons, five after classes. And so it wasn't taken seriously, I don't think, in the community or by the university. So I thought um, my curiosity was to go out and, and discover these things. And... Um, so I, I discovered Tuscarora and near Niagara Falls. And Tuscarora is one of the six indigenous nations that comprise the world's oldest participatory democracy, once called Iroquois by the French. The Confederacy of Nations to which the Tuscarora belong is now known more widely by its own name, the Haudenosaunee. So I did this series of uh, with them on called A Nation Within a Nation. Again, voices that hadn't been heard on the radio before, basically. And the same in the, you, you mentioned I had a series, started with a series uh, called To Be Negro, now this is in the 60s, but what is it like to be a black person in our society? Now that's something that is people are doing all the time to hear black voices that hadn't been heard and to hear their story. But I was doing it back then as a, as, as a, as again, being aware of the racial tensions, this is coming out of the 60s where, you know, there were demonstrations about after Martin Luther King's assassination and, and before there were other reasons to be demonstrating the inequality. So that led to having a studio in the heart of the black community. Um, where 27 hours a week originated. Just briefly underscoring how cool this must have been, and we're talking about 1969, 1970 at this point, Bill ardently maintains what many networks in the U.S. tend to forget. The airwaves belong to the people. 
So WBFO and the local residents draw up guidelines together for this storefront broadcast studio on Buffalo's east side, which basically provides WBFO's programming from Friday night to Sunday afternoon. Despite that there were at this point two local commercial stations aimed at an African-American audience, a DJ at this storefront center named Ed Smith was the first in Buffalo to broadcast R&B legend Roberta Flack. We organized a, a Black Arts Festival, and people brought in their poetry, and we published it in the program guide, photographs. We had a live jazz concert and everything. Um, again, a celebration of black culture that Caucasians were unaware of at that time. So, um, so I was uh, keenly aware of, in Buffalo particularly, of the social conflicts and the social issues and that I wasn't aware of in, in Madison because there weren't those kinds of issues that were being discussed there. But this was a different environment, and I was taking pleasure, I guess, in discovering, if you will, um, how radio could be used for social, for social change. As you know, it was um, uh, SUNY Buffalo was regarded as the Berkeley of the East. Um, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah I think there were maybe some other schools that, yeah. that claimed that title, but uh, <laughs> Buffalo <clears throat> really meant it. I think uh, in terms of the ferment and the excitement and um, wonderful writers, you know, Robert Creeley, uh, Leslie Fiedler, John Barth. Um, to name a few, so there was that. There were the creative associates in music, um, Lucas Foss, um, kind of guiding that, and <clears throat> and Alan Sapp was also the director of music there, uh, where there was a lot of creativity brewing. So there was a spirit of experimentation, if you will, which I talked about with radio, I, I took that to be uh, an invitation. So we broadcast, there was a Festival of the Arts over at the Albright Knox Art Gallery, and we broadcast um, much of that. Um, there was a series of cultural programs at the Historical Museum on Sunday nights, I think it was, with different ethnic groups uh, that represent Buffalo. And I would lug the recorder over there and record those. I think it was that spirit of experimentation, of trying stuff, that, um, that informed me in writing the mission statement. But also, I had anger at the dismissive way radio was treated, <clears throat> generally, especially by television, and anger at 
the absence of dealing with social issues in commercial radio and media. I was really angry. Television tried to push radio out of the original Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They wanted it to be just Corporation theirs. for Television. Right, right? because Public they said radio is an embarrassment and it takes money, of course, away from the important things of television. So, <clears throat> um, and I remember somebody asking me what I did and I said I was managing WBFO. He said, oh, it's just radio. Yes, it's just radio, damn it. It's just radio. I mean, I, <laughs> so that's why I uh, ended up calling the program This Is Radio. And I meant, This Is Radio, damn it, because I wanted people to pay attention to it, the radio medium and appreciate what it could do. And it grew, it grew out of the <clears throat> covering the riots at Buffalo in the, in starting on February 25th, I think it was. Um, 1970. It went on for three weeks. The police occupied the campus and there was tear gassing and all that stuff. Ferment about the Vietnam War and other social issues had led to varying degrees of unrest on many college campuses by the time UB seemed to explode in late February 1970. On February 24th, Buffalo police were summoned to a UB basketball game on account of a demonstration against allegations of racism in the athletics department. The next day, 50 students went to the office of acting President Peter Reagan, demanding an explanation for the cops. Rocks and chunks of ice were thrown at the president's windows. Campus police responded. About 500 students eventually assembled and things deteriorated from there, with a firebomb destroying hundreds of books in a campus library, a Supreme Court judge issuing multiple restraining orders, demonstrations of up to 2,000 students and faculty at one point, the sustained tension with police culminating in a public pig roast on March 10th, and on March 12th, a confrontation resulting in the injury of 58 people, including 35 police officers. Despite that the radio station was located in a building that was at one point tear-gassed by the police, Bill and his WBFO team produced 140 hours of coverage. So this was three weeks uh, yes. of, of, of active right. confrontation, and this was part of what you pre presented these differing right. perspectives right. on. For example, I had the acting president, um, Reagan, um, who was making the decisions. I, I asked him, so how are your decisions? Or where were you when you decided to okay the police to tear gas the student union building where our studios happened to be located? And he explained what information he had and why he okayed that. And I said, how are your decisions affected by you being a candidate to be named permanent president? He said, I've withdrawn my name from that consideration because I, I wanted to be able to make those decisions independently of that. Good, I thought. <clears throat> so then I talked to the leader of the student movement. I said, Terry, what influenced you? You went to parochial schools and uh, you started Canisius College and so on. What, what influenced you to be leader of this movement? And he said, well, <clears throat> I was arrested for a civil rights demonstration and put in county jail. And I had this professor, and I read these books, and that's how I happened to, that's what made me do these things. So I was saying on air, you see, there are different perceptions of 
of reality, but different people are operating in different ways. So we, and if you have another point of view, you know, come on down and we'll, we'll have that on the air. So we broadcast the town halls that they had and all these things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> As I say, I think it was over 140 hours. Wow. And we got praise for it in the, in the Courier Express. Jack Allen said it was a voice of reason amidst the chaos and so on. So that gave me some confidence of what I had written for the mission statement, if you will. And I thought, let's carry this on. Um, after, after this kind of, all this wall-to-wall coverage of this, let's do this. And that's where Fresh Air came from. I, I started This Is Radio, <clears throat> which was an afternoon program that had writers, musicians, um, sometimes news had come back from city council and saying, here's this really interesting exchange with, you know, Councilman Lewandowski. And they'd play a clip and I'd say, okay, that's, that's good. Let's, you can hear the whole thing on the news tonight at 6.30, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so I was having fun with radio, using radio as a live, vital medium. And <clears throat> After I left for NPR, Terry Gross became a host of This Is Radio. When they moved to Philadelphia, the producer and Terry renamed it Fresh Air. That's the story of the history, the genetic history, if you will, of Fresh Air. Bill's WBFO program called This Is Radio directly inspired at least two other shows. Fresh Air was one, and we talk more about its host, UB alumna Terry Gross, later on. But All Things Considered also owed lots to the experiments first conducted on This Is Radio, especially in its first year. Here's a clip from the very first broadcast of All Things Considered, May 3rd, 1971. It's a brilliant audio document of the anti-war protest that took place in D.C. earlier that day. The clip is four minutes in length, which will probably feel long by today's standards, but consider this. The full report on that first broadcast was a sound collage lasting 23 minutes. Buckle up. This is radio. Thousands of young people came to Washington willing to risk being arrested in order to end the war. They went into the streets this morning to stop the government from functioning by clogging many Washington roads during this morning's rush hour. For many demonstrators, the mobile street tactics of civil disobedience are an expected spring event. But before today, many other young people who came to Washington had not been willing to oppose the state with their bodies. For these young Americans, today was a major test of their commitment to the ethical code of the young and the angry. It was their freedom ride, their summer march, their May Day. Stop the war now! 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 One, two, three army helicopters flying surveillance over the small section of Washington's complicated highway system. A line of young people has just come across the highway. Traffic has stopped. And here come the police. One, two, three, four police on motor scooters. One demonstrator knocked down by a motor scooter policeman. 
Anger now. Anger of the young people. And here come more police. Demonstrators just told a motorcycle sergeant that one of his men did knock one of the demonstrators down. All right, where? Let me get an ambulance down here for you. Motor 3 on the Southwest Freeway. Have one injured down here. Could you send me uh, an ambulance, please? It's right at Main Avenue. And he hit the kid. He went right through the line. Me and almost knocked me down. And a blue. Yeah, but it's policemen we're talking about. A policeman. A motorcycle hit him. Not a, not a, not a citizen. Right there. The man over there. Right there. Sergeant, excuse me. Jeff came in National Public Radio. Is that a technique where the men actually try to drive the bikes into the demonstrators? No, it's no technique. We're trying to go down the road and the people get in front. Of, what are you going to do? You don't stop on a dime. What happened, officer? That doesn't count. Bricks. That don't count. Somebody threw a brick at you, officer? Yes, sir. Right here? As you were driving through? One of the motorcycle police officers says someone threw a brick at him. I was here at the time. I didn't see anything thrown. Army helicopters coming in low. Keeping constant surveillance. Keeping the various command posts. Military, police, and obviously presidential advised as to what's going on. One helicopter now is in real low. Military police helicopter. Up on the rise of this highway section, young people are holding an American flag upside down. A handful of police officers has succeeded in clearing at least half of this roadway, and traffic is flowing again. A Washington, D.C. bus has just arrived. Police officers wearing white riot helmets come out of the bus. They snap on their helmets. Integrated police team. The demonstrators are fleeing. The police officers are carrying or wearing their tear gas masks. The tactic this morning the citywide tactic, obviously, is to keep the demonstrators on the run. Now, how could I make an episode about the roots of public radio without including a pledge drive? True story. WBFO was the first station I pledged to back in the fall of 1987 when I was in 7th grade. I liked what I heard when I listened to my local NPR station. And BFO was mom and pop enough in those days to actually read the names of new and renewing members on the air. As a result, when I rolled into school the next morning, my health teacher, Mr. Jack Anthony, greeted me with his hand outstretched. He'd heard my name on the radio. Congratulations, he boomed. You did a good thing. Membership feels good, as I'm guessing you already know. If you don't currently contribute to public radio, please consider supporting your local NPR station. I don't need to tell you that fact-based reporting is an endangered species, 
and nobody does it better than NPR. And while I've got you, if you're not yet a member of this podcast community, I invite you to join today. If you can swing it, get in how you fit in with a small monthly donation or a one-time gift. It all helps to support this passion project of mine to share great ideas about what and how and why we learn. Subsidizing, for example, audio equipment and batteries and gas money for a trip to Philly to interview a radio visionary. Details for how to donate are on the show page, and thank you. Back to the show. To your mind, is there a way that radio or audio is particularly suited to do this sort of thing well? Letting people hear people or understand people in their own voice. The voice is so expressive. The human voice is so expressive. And that comes through because you're focusing just on that. You don't have distracting pictures, (laughs) if you will. Um, And I think if if you brought in lights and cameras and so on, it would change the environment in which somebody is talking. And for the listener, they can focus on this. People talk about how they love radio. I just love radio. I often hear this from listeners. I don't hear them say, I just love television, somehow. Because they're making a connection, because they create the image of who is talking. So they have an investment in what's being said in a way. I mean, they, they own the picture of, of the scene that's being set for them. The voice is so important. You can just focus on that and it gets to your heart, you know. It's not, it goes through your mind and to your heart. The, the, the voice is um, every bit, I believe, as, uh, as unique as a, as a fingerprint, you know, a exactly. voice. Um, exactly. In terms of how it, how it registers and, and how we hear it. And as you were, you know, as you were talking, I know that you have spoken you know, elsewhere or, or perhaps written elsewhere as well about a kind of greater affinity between print media and, and radio, perhaps, than radio and television in some ways in terms of how, you know, in terms of how one works and so forth. And I was thinking about the way, you know, one way I would talk with students about, because I felt like part of my job as an English teacher was to sell books, you know, like the idea of reading a book, you know, and to say that one of my goals was to find one book for you. If you've never found one, if you've never actually finished a book, you know, how can we do this? And one of the ways to talk about it, you know, in a, in a way that actually registered quite a bit with kids was to say, you know, it's one of the few media available, A, without advertising, you know, you're not going to have a pop-up ad, you know, you know, to, to come in there. But also, once you get into it, you can construct the scene, you can construct the people, the characters with the unlimited production budget of your own mind, right. you know, it, and you get to know them in a, right. in a way that, that really feels quite different than... Right okay, this is Scarlett Johansson playing right. this part, so I see her when I, you know, right. when I think of this character. Um, another thing that your comment re- you know, reminded me of, this, this profound feeling of intimacy, I think one of my first, you know, speaking of the power of radio in the Midwest, one of the first things that prompted me to fall in love with radio 
was Garrison Keillor's very home companion and listening to the monologues mm-hmm. and just like tuning into, you know, it was listening with my father. And so that was an association, mm-hmm. like both parents, but my dad was a Presbyterian minister. So I feel like anybody who's got a connection to Prairie Home Companion either has a relationship to the Midwest or to mainline Protestantism. I think you have to have one of or both of those in order for it to click, especially if you're not in Minnesota, for example. Listening to those stories, uh, it, I was just taken away. As a kid, perhaps, like, you know, I was not in his target audience. as like a seven, eight-year-old, you know, just getting all involved with the doings, the goings-on at the Chatterbox Cafe. But it was captivating to me. I was just going to contrast that. I enjoyed it so much that I went to see him, I think maybe even twice, when he came to Town Hall. You know, he would, he would do that frequently in New York City and to come in the wintertime, especially, he would do shows there. And I liked seeing how the sausage was made, if you will. You know, to see a radio show on stage and to see the prop table, you know, and all the effects and stuff like that. And to watch, you know, see what he looks like. Because, you, you know, it, it, I constructed my whole picture. I meant that that happens in radio all the time. You say, what does this person look like? And you're just always wrong. But there was also something about it that was just visually distracting. You know, I didn't enjoy the monologue as much as, because I was looking at everything. It was very different from the experience of just like, even, you know, while I'm doing dishes, not giving it my full attention, but still it's filling up my mind. So there's an intimacy about it that's well, an immersion, you know, that's, 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 that's pretty different from television. We're, we're living in the age of audio because uh, with podcasts like this one, uh, there are bless you. Thank probably you, a million of them. I don't <laughs> I know. I think that's true. And um, when you have the editor of the New Yorker, the the uh, yeah, David Remnick, yeah, mm-hmm. the prototype of print, I guess, or the you know the traditional thought of print, <laughs> doing radio, and the New York Times also having audio, yeah. um, the Daily, and the Daily, and so on, uh, so. And, and NPR is the largest, second largest um, publisher of podcasts, which says a lot about the quality of NPR programming, that they would rise to that out of a million options, that they would rise to that. So just as uh, John Opera was saying in your last program about uh, Photographs now being uh, ubiquitous. Audio is everywhere. And as you pointed out earlier, people are are streaming. They're not listening to the box of the radio so much, except in the car. And I think we, we have much, you're talking about the print. Radio has much more in common with print than they do with television. First, because the generalization, but we tend to be on the introvert side because we can be in public without being seen. And we're working with ideas without showing pictures. So we're describing scenes and so on. It works for us that way. And uh, Terry Gross has talked about this. as She is a shy person by nature and talked about the microphone as her way of talking to people. I mean, she's learned to make wonderful presentations to a large audience, but. Um, by nature, she is shy. I've seen some of those too, and I, I think she has. I think she remarked at one point that she actually, you know, as long as it's good audio quality, she 
prefers sometimes to do a, a telephone oh, yes. interview or, as opposed to being you know in the same right, room right. with somebody. Because she can spread out her notes and doesn't have to worry about eye contact. Mm -hmm. I found a detail in Jack Mitchell's book about public radio called Listener Supported that I didn't read anywhere else about you, which is that while you were a student at the University of Wisconsin and a member of the WHA radio student staff, you were also training for a career as a high school guidance counselor. This immediately made a great deal of sense to me because of your belief that qualities like empathy and curiosity are essential for a good interviewer. Of course, they're also critical for a good counselor. Do you th believe that your, your interest in psychology, in connecting with people, informed your different approach to the, you know, the possibilities of radio and what, what radio could reveal about people? People open up if you treat them with respect. If you're on the attack, you just get a defense, and they shut down, and they're not going to open up. I think one of the secrets of Terry Gross as an interviewer is that she listens intently, as a therapist might. And she also does her homework. She, she reads the book. And she does the research necessary to have a, a good interview so that people sense that she respects them by her research and by the way she's asking questions and, and listening. She may have her list of questions, but she will go down a, a, a new path as they open it up for her. And I think that's why they feel connected to her in a way and show so much respect to her, because she shows the respect to them. I think it's the basis of it. You approach them with respect uh, as a person, not as an adversary or somebody that you can keep attacking and get at something. Well, and I think it's it's your idea of talking with, yes, um, you not know, about. talking with and not about the people right. that you're right. quote unquote covering, you right. know, that that's that, that, right. and, and and allowing them to speak as well and handing them the microphone. Right. You know, that's one of the that's one of the that's one of the real differences. Um, I don't I don't know that you were. I don't know that you were baiting me with this, you know, Terry Gross question. I'm going to see how this works. Um, because when Terry interviewed you and Susan Stamberg in, this was, this was late April, but it was anticipation right. of the 50th anniversary of All Things Considered, uh, which was May 3rd. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Next Monday, May 3rd, will mark the 50th anniversary of NPR and All Things Considered. May 3rd. 1971, 2021, 50 years. Um, she noted... Bill holds a special place in my life and in the life of our show. From 1978 to 87, he was the station manager at WHYY, where our show is produced. Fresh Air began as a local show, and it would never have become a national show without him. But that's a story for another time. Again, there was a big anniversary of NPR to talk about. Now, because of one of the one of the items on my podcast bucket list is to scoop fresh air, I wonder if you'd be willing to say something about the process. This may be too much inside radio to know the backstory <laughs> of how this happened. I knew that stations were agitating to have 
all things considered, which started at five then, to start an hour earlier at four. And the reporters thought, it's, it's hard enough to, to get a five o'clock deadline. Where I wanted, I wanted all things considered to be the very first broadcast record of the day's events. I didn't want it to be second to, because the television comes on at 6.30. PBS came on with kind of a backstory at seven. But I wanted, I wasn't taking a backseat to anyone. <laughs> I wanted radio to be up, up front about it. So, um, I thought Fresh Air, which was such an excellent program. I mean, I'd, I'd see the, the uh, guest leaving after the interview as a rule. They go by my office and I'd say, you know, that's the best interview I ever had. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I so believed in Fresh Air and its staff. Yes, it's, it, it's Terry, but it's Danny Miller is the, ex, you know, the executive producer. He's been there ever since I've been here, 43 years. And, and the staff are the ones that come up with the story ideas and so on. Anyway, so I said, let's envision this so that Terry's interviews are um, longer in the first hour and then they, they get shorter so they're the same pace, the same length of all things considered pieces at the end, so you can just, it's be seamless. And to further make it seamless, we had a live promo with Robert Siegel, who is on uh, hosting All Things Considered. So Terry would say about 10 minutes in, so Robert, what do you have tonight? Mm. And he would say what the rundown was. So it, it was seamless, it would be, and it would be like presenting kind of the art section of a newspaper, or the style section or whatever, um, you know, as a lead-in to all things considered. It would be the same high quality, um, great, interesting interviews, um, and it would be a perfect way of, of stations to have something starting at four that um, would be totally complementary to all things considered. Wikipedia credits you with incorporating music and sound and compelling storytelling into radio programming since your days at WBFO. They also say you played a key role in crafting NPR's distinctive sound. And I know I've read about this in your discussions of you know what you wanted to, to have to have it be an identifiable daily product. Daily product, right? So that you'd listen to it and you'd know that you were hearing NPR. I think um in all fairness, I, I outlined an intention, but um, I've given too much credit for the actual what you hear on the, on the radio. I think <clears throat> I, I would rather be regarded as um, like a recruiter for an orchestra, okay. and I recruited the talent, and maybe the oval player uh, 
playing so they can tune their instruments to that um, with the with the mission statement is is it because they're they're the ones that create the music so that said <laughs> what I intended was that all things considered would treat the arts as an equal part of of daily life and of importance as what's going on in Washington or wherever is the news and so that um, listening to a poet would be as natural as listening to a, um, an academic talking about um, the Supreme Court or something. <clears throat> so that it also provided the listener with a respite from the intensity of hard news because they can think more reflectively when they hear <clears throat> the poet. Um, taking them in a very different place in their minds. So <clears throat> the different textures, if you will, is what I was looking for. And the sound I wanted was, happened to be materialized in Susan Stamberg, mm -hmm. who has this very expressive voice. And um, it exudes curiosity and compassion and caring <clears throat> and she to me had the best voice sound for what NPR what I want NPR to sound like before I share a clip to illustrate Susan Stamberg's singular voice and on-air presence it's worth noting the basic fact that she is a woman 50 years ago when Bill installed her as co-host of all things considered, Stamberg was the first woman in the United States to host a nightly news program. Here's a clip from her 1977 interview with the writer Joan Didion, itself a great example of Seemering's vision for NPR, that the hard news of the day should be tempered with forays into the arts and ideas more durable than a single news cycle. Susan Stamberg later ranked this conversation among her favorite of the more than 15,000 interviews she conducted during her years as co-host of All Things Considered. The clip runs just under two minutes and starts with Stamberg speaking about Didion's writing. Her best nonfiction essays are collected in the 1968 book Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Here's a quote from her introduction to that book. My only advantage as a reporter is that I am so physically small so temperamentally unobtrusive and so neurotically inarticulate that people tend to forget that my presence runs counter to their best interests. And it always does. That is one last thing to remember. Writers are always selling somebody out. That's an odd quote. People, when I go to colleges to talk, um, people are always telling, asking me about writers are always selling somebody out. Um, and I, all I meant by it was that it is impossible to describe anybody, a friend or somebody you know very well, and please them. Uh, because your image of them, no matter how flattering, never corresponds with their self-image. It's a... I mean, it... it so you are... Be short or long. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, I hear it in a, a different way yeah. from my work. I hear it as... Uh, Right now, sitting here, mm -hmm. wanting to talk to you about the things that most concern you in your life, 
and feeling I could never do that because there's no reason I should rip off your emotions and your privacy to make my living. That's how I hear this line. Really? Yes. So I meant something so specific by it. That <laughs> but I'm saying the same yeah. thing you are in yeah. a different way. Yes. You know, tell, yeah. give me my great story. You know, mm-hmm. Tell me about your nervous breakdown, how awful <laughs> it was. Give me my great radio tape, you know. And knowing I could never dare, never dare to ask that. Or whatever it was, you know, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Because it simply would, mm-hmm. would invade a kind of privacy that, that's nobody's damn business. I know, right? So back to this question of the distinctive NPR sound with Bill, where I had the exciting experience of him shaking up what I thought I was asking about. I I thought I was asking really about sound design. Like, you know how when you're driving in a strange part of the country and you scan around the bottom end of the FM dial, you can tell when you've hit an NPR station, like regardless of who's talking or what music might be playing, it just sounds different. Some of it is clarity, some of it is vocal quality and how voices are mic'd, but Bill was reminding me that the NPR difference really starts with substance, the right mix of content. It starts with saying, let's let's say that the news is not just what happened, or that what is going to be of interest to people on a given date is not just the political goings-on, you know, that there there are cultural goings-on, and in fact that those things are necessary for us as full human beings who are not just you know interested right. in the next kind of budget or political crisis and you know, to hear from the midwest a farmer from the midwest yes. and to hear from a fisherman in california or whatever um to take people to those places um that was part of wanting the country to hear itself that's what the national program can do yeah. And so, the, you know, the, the, there was certainly the, the, the device or the trope of the so-called man on the street that well, that predated yeah. national public radio. Is that is that the case? Yeah. But it was generally, but it was generally kind of I don't know, tokenism or artificial or just kind of just like right, right. <laughs> as much to say like, look at all this guy doesn't right or, or whatever, as opposed yeah. to yeah. saying here's somebody who's intimately involved with. The situation, fishing crisis, or what have you, or just what what life is like. Okay. Um, wow. Once you're attuned to Bill's conviction that people should tell their own story in their own voice, you hear it everywhere in NPR programming, starting with the very first minute of the very first broadcast of All Things Considered, May 3rd, 1971. After host Robert Conley, the first voice you hear is a nurse telling about her own struggle with heroin addiction. From National Public Radio in Washington, I'm Robert Conley with All Things Considered. doing the drug often enough to get to the point where when you wake up in the morning your nose is running and your stomach is cramping and you know you can't stand for no for someone to come in there and holler at you you know you're totally different and you're spitting up from the bed to the toilet you sick and Harry has knocked on your door that anguish surrounds the life of a mother and nurse we call Janice in her struggle to break away from addiction 
We'll have a portrait of Janice later in the program. Since 1993, Bill has worked internationally, assisting community radio stations and supporting initiatives for civil society in Eastern Europe and Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Even as traditional radio has morphed for many U.S. citizens into the audio experience of podcasts or streaming services in many parts of the world, radio remains an indispensable daily feature of life. I'd love for you to share anything that's top of mind about your international work what we do, we generally do uh, with Developing Radio Partners, which was the NGO I started in 2004. Um, we would have a workshop uh, where we would have a presenter on a topic, uh, could be health, uh, uh, health services for, for teens, or it could be um, climate change, information for farmers, things like that. <clears throat> then we would give the participants a digital recorder and mic, and they'd go out and record things and come back and critique them. And and then we would have our, our mentor go out uh, after that and be at the stations to work with them, Martha Zulu, who spoke all the local languages and so on. <clears throat> so it wasn't uh, Caucasian coming in from America teaching. It was people knowledgeable there doing the teaching. As an example, in Malawi, um, the increase there was great increase in the number of people that that of, of young people that went to get to the clinic to get information about reproductive health or HIV testing, and that the um, the parents were on board with this and the religious leaders and so on, so that the kids could prevent getting pregnant or shipped off to to marry somebody. There was one case where Florence, who was a child bride to a man 10 years older than she was when she was 16, and she found it to be physically and emotionally abusive. And then when she listened to the Youth-Friendly Health Services Program, which is called Let's Shine, it, she said, it gave me the courage to get out of the mess I was in. And her mother was also listening, and, and she said, I wanted her to feel welcome and loved when she got home. I also wanted to make sure to keep reproductive health conversation going between us so she doesn't have an early pregnancy. That's the kind of very practical things that go on. Then in Sierra Leone, we helped facilitate creating an independent radio network there, where um, prior to an election, they presented, um, you know, again, people talking about their concerns. And they said, you know, um, they were divided kind of north-south like we are. And they said, you know, um, we're not as divided as we thought we were. It's the politicians that are dividing us. We care about the same things. So <clears throat> then when they had Ebola there, the radio stations took a lead in informing people about what they needed to do. Um, again, with with COVID, they were able to um, present the information about wearing masks and and so on, getting vaccinated, um, because they can speak in local languages, the three languages maybe in that community. Right. 
and it's the most trusted it's the most trusted source of information in many of these countries. It's a local radio station. In Mozambique, if they had trouble with uh, a nurse at the clinic, they would come to the radio. If they had a problem with the police, they would come there. And they would investigate and get back to them and make this public if it was necessary. So that's the power of radio in development. So it's really inspiring to see how it works. Agreed. And that's it for today's show. My great thanks to Bill Seemering for welcoming me into his beautiful home just outside Philly, just before Omicron went nuts last month. Thanks, as always, to Schaefer James for intro and outro music. Within the episode, I sampled some variations on the All Things Considered theme music by Don Vagley, and the cut compared to what from Roberta Flack's 1969 debut album, first take. The Fresh Air theme was composed by Joel Forrester. A Prairie Home Companions theme, the Tishomingo Blues by Spencer Williams, was covered by the incomparable Mark Wright. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, and mixed by me here in sunny Buffalo. I'm Peter Horn, and I'm so glad you're here. If you can think of just one other person who would dig this episode, Perhaps you know an NPR superfan like me? Please go ahead and share it with them. It will mean most coming from you. I'll be back just as soon as I can with another show all about what and how and why we learn. See you then. Would you prefer that this episode be called, it's going to be some version of This Is Radio, but we could call it This Is Radio, damn it, if you, if you want. Would that be all right? You? If you want to. Yeah? yeah. This Is Radio, damn it. Now, would the damn it be in parentheses? Is it? Or, it wasn't part of the title. No, but I would say because, because it's, going to be some, it's going to be some version of This Is Radio with Bill Seamery. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's going right. to be our episode title, right. like okay. on photography with John Opera. Right. But we could put This Is Radio, damn it, just like This Is Radio, comma, damn it, mm-hmm. with Bill Seamering. Or we could put it in print. Now, let, you yeah, know. we could do it in I guess. Okay, All right, we'll chew on that. You've been listening to Point of Learning with Peter Horn. In this episode, we heard Peter in discussion with Bill Seemering, one of the pioneers of national public radio.